Be seated. Well, having uh, taken my turn to be on annual leave, I uh, would encourage you, please, to be uh, praying for Kay. She's just coming to the end of her first week of leave. She's uh, away again next uh, week as well. So please don't hesitate to give me a shout if you're brave enough uh, in the weeks ahead. Uh, if ordinarily you might have contacted Kay, we really do pray she has a great time. Well, I wonder if, uh, do you know anybody who is just a little bit angry? Do you know anybody like that? I encounter, I think, a lot of angry people, rarely face-to-face. Quite often I encounter them on social media. There's always someone, isn't there? Someone ready to rant, someone ready to rave, someone ready to be negative on social media, especially on Facebook. Maybe you've encountered them as well. Do you know, to be honest, I mostly ignore people like that on social media because they really, and I mean really, irritate me. You see, I have a life rule on social media, which is this, is I will never, ever post anything which is negative. So when you have that life rule, other people's negativity really grates with you. Now, I know these are all my issues, and I would encourage you to pray for me. In fact, there are about 10 or so people who are always so negative and so angry and ranting all the time that I've actually switched off their notifications, so I never, ever get my feed polluted by them. Well, that's left some of us wondering, isn't it? Am I on his list? Has he blocked me? How dare he? Uh, You're in safe company, I think it's fair to say. In many ways, we we live in an angry kind of a world, don't we? I wonder for you, are you you somebody who's easily angered? Maybe even today you've joined us in worship and you're feeling angry about something. I wonder if you're somebody who's easily agitated or someone whose blood boils over a particular person or a particular issue um, quite quickly. What do we do when we have feelings of anger? What do we do when we sense our blood is starting to boil? Well, this morning we get to our last message in our summer teaching series. Hasn't it been fun thinking about some of those stories that we might have learned when we were at Sunday school, but never really gotten to the bottom of in terms of application? Well, in our story today, we encounter Jesus, and Jesus is angry. Yes, Jesus is angry. Probably most of us, when we think of Jesus, think of Jesus, meek and mild, Jesus, full of compassion and grace, Jesus, who's always cool, calm, and collected. Somehow, I find it such a relief that Jesus sometimes got angry. But there's a but, of course, to this statement, is that when Jesus got angry, he always did it in a way that honored God. And in a sense, that's our challenge today, to be a people who get angry but get angry like Jesus, to be angry like Jesus. Well, if you've got a Bible with you today, uh, open it to Matthew chapter 21. If you haven't, don't worry, you can listen in. Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to read this well-known story from verses 12 to 17. Jesus at the temple. Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and he heard, they heard the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus, have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them, and he went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. 
One of the questions that Christians often wrestle with when they hear this text is, is it a sin to be angry? And it's very clear from our text, but from elsewhere in Scripture as well, that no, it's not a sin to be angry. But we should note, shouldn't we, this morning, that anger can very quickly lead to unproductive and destructive sin. But the emotion of anger in and of itself in isolation isn't a sin. It's what anger sometimes leads to that then becomes a sin. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, the Apostle Paul is keen to make exactly the same point. He says there, in your anger, he doesn't say there, don't get angry, but he says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not harbor bitterness in your soul. He then goes on to say, don't let the sun go down whilst you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. A foothold, he says. Now, the word foothold in the original Greek actually means a place, or it means a room, or we might say, don't give to Satan a foothold, an opportunity to camp out in your field of life. Now, I wonder if you can think of somebody who's done that, somebody who's given Satan a foothold in their lives because of their anger. Well, of course you can think of somebody. We all know somebody. But I would encourage you, don't point at them now, because that's going to make them really mad, isn't it? But we all know somebody, that one person who's given Satan a foothold. And maybe for some of us, it's the person we see when we look in the mirror. It describes us. You see, anger, in a sense, leaves the door ajar to our lives. And Satan just loves to put his foot in the door and to force his way over the threshold into our lives. That's why many marriages struggle, because Satan has somehow gotten a foothold. That's why friendships sometimes are difficult and they hurt because Satan has been given a place to camp out. That's why family relationships and relationships within the workplace sometimes struggle because Satan's bedfellows of anger and bitterness have been allowed to reproduce. Splits and divisions in churches tragically and sadly happen more often than not because Satan has taken up residence in the pews Anger and bitterness have been allowed to sit there in our worship services, often over completely trivial, insignificant issues to begin with. Well, let's get back to our story for a moment of Jesus in the temple. You know, the context of this story is so incredibly important. Jesus in this moment is entering into Jerusalem just before the Passover. Now, if you don't know about Passover in the first century, essentially it's when every Jew from the Roman Empire would try to travel to Jerusalem in order to have this massive celebration. Imagine Christchurch Food Festival 50,000-fold. It's that kind of event. They would come together and they would celebrate that they'd overcome their enemies, that God had rescued them during a difficult time, and they would offer sacrifices when normally there'd be about 40,000 people in Jerusalem during Passover, numbers would swell when in excess beyond the quarter of a million people. You can imagine the kind of environment that Jesus is coming into. But two in the story, we need to have a think about Jesus' mindset. This is the last week of his earthly life, of his earthly ministry, and Jesus absolutely knew it. You can imagine as he came into the temple grounds, the perfect, sinless son of God, he was about to give his life for the atonement of the sins of others, was about to go into the temple, and what he saw made him righteously angry. He saw greed, he saw hypocrisy, he saw abuse, he saw the misuse of his father's house. So Jesus does something in our story which is a little bit out of the ordinary for Jesus. This is not an everyday experience for him. Jesus gets angry. 
but he's in a state here of righteous anger. This is not sin-fueled anger. And he flips over a few tables and some benches in verse 12. And then he ushers a bunch of buyers and sellers out of the building, out of the temple courts. And then he preaches a mini-sermon to them in verse 13. And in that mini-sermon, he's prophetically quoting the words of Isaiah and Jeremiah from the Old Testament. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, and you are making it a den of robbers. I wonder what Jesus would have said if he didn't have those scripture verses to turn back to. That's pretty explicit stuff, isn't it? This was supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've gone and made it a den of iniquity, a den of robbers. But then Matthew, in his account of this story, gives us a bit of the story which seems a little bit out of context, giving all the table flipping that's gone on. In verse 14, he says, it says, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and Jesus healed them. Verse 15, the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw what was happening there and they were indignant. That's an understatement, I expect. I expect they had boiling red faces as they vented their views passionately at Jesus. And all of this seems like a slightly awkward fusing together of two or three stories the table flipping, the the healing, the response to the religious people. But in fact, Matthew captures this as one event because it is one event. And in the midst of this, we discover something incredible about Jesus. Well, imagine for a moment that you were Jesus in this moment. You were the one that arrived and was going to flip some tables. You were the one who was going to go in there and get mad. Immediately after this event, I wonder what you would have needed to have done after you'd flipped the tables and the benches. Well, if you're anything like me, when you get mad, you probably need to go and take some sedatives. When you get mad, you probably need to go and lie down and count to 10 or maybe 100 or 1,000 or something. Maybe when you get mad, you would have wanted to, to wallow for a few hours in your indignation, assuring yourself that you're right and everybody else is wrong. And if you're anything like me, you lie there for a few hours just waiting for the apology to come that often doesn't come. Well, now's the moment to stop nudging your other half and say, he's describing you. (laughs) You see, that's not what Jesus did in this moment. Jesus loved the outcast. Jesus was the one who was willing to touch the lepers. Jesus was the one who was forgiving the sins of sinners. And amazingly, Jesus' anger does not and would not distract him from that primary call that he'd been called to. Isn't that amazing? But nor does Jesus' anger here in this moment discredit his witness. In fact, quite the opposite happens. Jesus' anger creates an opportunity for ministry. Now, when I get angry, especially publicly, which thankfully doesn't very, happen very often, I normally feel embarrassed. I normally feel that suddenly everything around me has become incredibly awkward. If I were engaged in a mission or ministry opportunity, I can tell you for sure that mission, that ministry opportunity would end there and then. Firstly, because I would feel so awkward about it, but secondly, because everyone would be running for the hills because of the way that I got angry. We'll think more about that in a second. But this morning, what I want to do is just show you very quickly three specific things that I think we can learn from Jesus in this story. You see, from Jesus today, we learn how to be angry without dishonoring God. Well, I wonder what that looks like, to be angry without dishonoring God. And the first thing we see about Jesus in his angry moment here is that Jesus wasn't actually angry about what others had done to him. In fact, Jesus was getting angry on behalf of those who were being mistreated. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus here in this moment was not offended by what somebody had said to him or about how he'd been treated. In fact, he wasn't even particularly angry being the son of God about the way the temple was using that that was being used. That didn't seem to be the primary thing, but his heart was breaking first and foremost over the mistreatment of others. I find that mind-blowing. You see, if I'm really honest, most of the time, and I'd encourage you to do some self-reflection here as well, when I get angry, when you get angry, it's normally all about me. Rarely is my anger about other people. In truth, I probably don't get angry enough or even often enough about the mistreatment of others. If I was to put my anger for myself and anger for others on a set of weighing scales, my side of the equation would grossly outweigh the other side. And yet here's Jesus, a man who knew what it was to be betrayed, a man who knew what it was to be criticized and gossiped about, a man who knew what it was to be hated by other people, a man who in the days to come had already had been unjustly persecuted. Here he is, not getting angry because of the way people were treating him, but he was getting angry on behalf of others. Jesus in this moment is not getting angry because somebody posted something unkind about him on social media, so he responds like a ninja keyboard warrior. Have you ever seen people do that, ever done it yourself? When Jesus gets angry, it's because others are hurting. When Jesus gets angry, it's because others are being mistreated. Jesus' anger is never about himself or about his mistreatment. Now, every now and again, you'll hear this story that we've read this morning referred to as the temple tantrum. It sounds great, doesn't it? The temple tantrum. But actually, that couldn't be further from the truth of what was happening. Whenever I see tantrums in my house, and we see lots of them, mostly from Meg. Actually, it's not really. Normally, these are uncontrolled, irrational outbursts. So to call this story the temple tantrum is absolutely wrong. And actually, Matthew wants to drive the point here that Jesus' anger was targeted at specific people and not everyone. Jesus doesn't enter the temple courts and just wildly and generically vent his anger at anyone who came his way, but it was targeted and it was proportional. He goes and he flips over the tables, verse 12, of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves. Well, let's have a think about the money changers for a moment. These were the people who would exchange currency so that you would have the right currency to spend in the temple. Now, now this idea isn't that alien to us as we might think. If ever you've traveled internationally, do you remember when we used to do that? You would go and exchange your currency at the foreign currency exchange, and they'll often charge you more, and they'll mark up in order to make a profit on that exchange. And here's the reality. The closer you get to the airport, the more exorbitant the rate becomes. And that's what's going on here in Jesus' day. And Jesus' problem is that they were disproportionately marking it, up, market it, marking it up. And in doing so, they were exploiting the most vulnerable in society. In a sense here, Jesus is saying, okay, it's okay to make a profit. There's no problem with business, but your profit is excessive and it's being done so at the expense of society's most vulnerable. But Jesus, too, we read, flipped the benches of those who were selling doves. Now, when you rocked up at church this morning, we didn't encourage you here to, to buy some doves so that they would be sacrificed. Praise God for that. But the idea of buying doves before you head into church, strange as that might sound, isn't either an, an alien concept to us. 
We're used to going to a product, a, a, a venue, and paying a marked-up price for the products that we buy. Now, we had this experience whilst we were on holiday a couple of weeks ago. If you go to a supermarket, you can buy a Magnum ice cream for a pound or less. From the ice cream boat that pulled up on Studland Beach, guess how much it was? £3.50 for one Magnum. Shocking, £3.50, a rip-off. But at the point we joined the queue, we were committed for our children's sake at that point, and it also saved hours of uh, queuing at the kiosk. What we should have done is flipped the vendor's boat. That would have been great fun, but we didn't. You see, here's the big point is this, is that in Jesus' day, the end result of all of this was that it was those who were marginalized, who didn't have the resources in the first place to take a sacrifice, who were suffering the most. And that's what Jesus is getting angry about. He's not angry about what's been done to him. He's not angry that he's being criticized or mistreated. His anger is all about the mistreatment of others. So that's our first thought, that Jesus got angry about the mistreatment of others. It wasn't about himself. And by point of application here, I just wonder if there's some benches that we need to flip. I wonder if there's some tables that we need to be passionately flipping, not for the sake of ourselves, but for the sake of others. And I want to encourage you, go ahead and flip them. Because when we flip tables and we flip benches in Jesus' name, we're making room for those who otherwise wouldn't be able to come to God to offer their worship and their praise. But there's a challenge here, and it's this. If we're going to be people who are flipping tables and benches, then we need to be flipping them perfectly, or as perfectly as we can with good motives. And we need to check that it's not really about us, but it's about others, like Jesus did. Well, my second observation from our story, and they get quicker, don't worry, is this, is that when Jesus got angry, he flipped tables, he didn't flip people. Now, did you notice in the story that Jesus didn't punch, hit, or hurt a single person in this story? Jesus didn't use any expletives or any obscenities. In fact, he, he didn't even call down fire from heaven. That's what I'd have done in this moment. Fire from heaven, burn them all up, Lord. That's the sacrifice that needs to be made. Now, some of you are thinking, well, hang on a minute. What about in John's gospel? It says there that Jesus picked up a whip. Yes, he did. But it also says in John's gospel, not explicitly, but at no point does John say Jesus used that whip on other people. He just picked it up. Well, why did Jesus flip the tables and the benches instead of punching someone on the nose? Because those tables were the resources that were supporting, if you like, or underpinning the hypocrisy and the mistreatment of others. By flipping tables rather than flipping people, Jesus was disrupting the system that was perpetuating this injustice. And at the same time, he was making a very loud prophetic statement about the future of the temple and those who were running it. Jesus' anger undermined ungodly resources, but too it was a signpost that pointed people towards God and godly ways. So a question. When you get angry, who or what do you flip? Think back to the last time that you got angry. Who or what were you flipping? Were you flipping the people, the person, or were you flipping the underlying problem and attitudes or mindsets that might be manifesting itself through that person? You see, Jesus in our story today shows us that even when we're angry, we're still called to be loving. Oh, 
even when we're angry, we're still called to be loving. That's so tough that even in anger, there's room for love. And I think that's a word for some of us today. Even in your anger, and it might be righteous anger, there's room for love, especially love of the person that you might be angry towards. It's so easy, isn't it, in our effort to be right in life, to forget to be loving. Of course, it was the Apostle Paul who said, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and being right. And the gracious of these is being right all of the time. Well, he didn't say that. I'm sorry to disappoint you. He said, the greatest of these is faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is what? Is love. The example of Jesus confronts us with a challenge, doesn't it? To make sure that when we're angry, we don't let that anger convert into unrighteous anger that justifies unloving behavior. Our goal as Christians is not just or even to be right. Our goal always is to be loving, even when and especially when we're angry. Point number two, Jesus flipped tables. He didn't flip people. And then the final thing I want us to notice is this. When Jesus got angry, he loved and he healed those who were hurting Jesus' angry outburst here is an opportunity for mission and for ministry. Did you see that in the story? Jesus gets angry and he makes a way for others to come to God, to receive from God. Jesus gets angry and it makes a place for worship. In his anger, the voices of children suddenly rose up. What a significant word for us this morning. After the flipping of the tables came the, the healing of the blind and the lame. After the flipping of the tables came the shouting of the children, Hosanna to the son of David in the temple courts. And who was it that couldn't get into the temple to, the worship, to worship? It was the poor. It was the marginalized. It was the blind. It was the sick. It was the lame. And to a slightly lesser extent, it was children. Why couldn't they go in? Because they didn't have the resources to offer worship or they didn't have the social status to offer worship. Isn't this brilliant? Jesus didn't just flip tables for the sake of flipping tables. He wasn't just flipping tables to draw attention to himself to make a point. When Jesus flipped a table, he did it to help the hurting and the sick and to enable those who couldn't to worship. Right there in the middle of this righteous anger wasn't just a table flipping moment. This was a people loving moment. It's what Jesus is engaged in here. The message version of the Bible says this. I think this is so brilliant. Jesus kicked over the tables of the loan sharks and the stall of dove merchants. And then it says, now there was room. Now there was room for the blind and the crippled to get in. The tables were in the way. Jesus moved them and it made room for people who otherwise couldn't go in to enter. And then it goes on to say, when the religious leaders saw the outrageous things he was doing and he heard the children singing, they were up in arms. Of course they were. Jesus' anger makes way for the blind, the sick, the outcast, and the child to access God. Ironically, religious people were stopping God, uh, p- uh, others from, from reaching God. Religious people. When people were unkind to Jesus, when he did his earthly ministry, he was mistreated. Here's a short list. The Pharisees, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Judas, Peter... They all wronged, they all hurt, betrayed, lied about, or misjudged Jesus. What does he say to them? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Even in our anger, there is room for love. 
And as I think about my own life, I'm so grateful that God didn't write me off in anger. I'm so grateful that this holy God who knew the brokenness of my life didn't write me off. And I guess if you've come to faith in Christ, you probably feel the same today as well. He cancelled my sin. He didn't cancel me. He forgave me when I sinned against him, and he continues to forgive me today. Some of us need to know that today. This is the God that we know and love. He's a forgiving God who never writes us off. In fact, he loves us when he should be expressing anger, wrath towards us. He loves us. In fact, he loves us so much that this one and only son of his who was innocent would come to the cross and Jesus there would defeat death. He'd pay the price. He'd defeat hell, sin, and he'd defeat the grave. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Colossians 2. For God forgave all our sins. He cancelled the record of the charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the cross in this way. He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authority. He shamed them publicly by his victory over the cross. I'm so grateful that Jesus didn't express his anger to me, but he expressed his love. I'm grateful too for those who in this life, Christian brothers and sisters who are fighting against injustices and things that are wrong in this world. I'm grateful for those who are fighting against sexual exploitation, for those who fight for marriage. I'm grateful for those who are in their righteous anger fighting against racism, men and women who stand for us every single day in conflict. I'm grateful for those who are fighting for the case of the unborn, for those who are suffering from emotional health problems, for those who are exploited through human trafficking. I'm grateful today for men and women who are standing in Afghanistan to speak for the rights of those who don't deserve to be treated the way they're being treated. I'm grateful for those who speak out for clean drinking water, for good food, for people who otherwise don't have it. I'm grateful for those who are angry about our care of God's creation. I thank God for people who, in Jesus' name, are flipping tables and they're doing it in love. There's a challenge, I think, from this text to be a people who make sure that we are rightly flipping tables and benches that we're people who spot the tables and the benches who are getting in the, other, in the way of others coming to God. Today, this day, nothing, nothing stands in the way of you of joining your voice to the voice of those children and offering your praise and your worship to our God. Nothing, because Jesus has dealt with it on the cross for which we thank him. Let's be still for a moment. Let's just pray. I want us not this morning just